So, true story. When I first heard this passage that I'd be preaching on this morning, my head sort of dropped. And I said some colorful version of, you've got to be kidding me. Uh, This is one of those parts of the Bible where the only way out is through, so here we go. Uh, In our reading today, we're only in the third chapter of Mark, so not much has happened. We're still at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And in those two and a half chapters leading to here, Jesus has already cast out demons and healed people. He caused a big commotion in his home when uh, they lowered the paralyzed man through his roof. You know, they had to take the roof off. Big scene. Uh, And he had already provoked the religious authorities by openly forgiving people of their sins, disobeying the laws of the Sabbath, uh, upsetting the cultural norms of piety and dining. All in just two and a half chapters. So then he gathers his 12, and here we find him back in his home in this crowded space. The kind of space we can't really imagine being in right now. But let's, let's just do it for fun. I imagine this like hot, sweaty, smelly room of bodies, standing room only, no room for a table. This is no room for bread even. I don't know what that means. You can't even lift your hand to your mouth. I'm not sure. But these folks are standing there waiting, watching this half train wreck, half everything you hope is good and real in the world sort of figure for what he might say next. And then there's this commotion outside, and his family is actually trying to restrain him saying, our son, our brother, he's not well, he's out of his mind. Uh, Everybody just go home, nothing to see here. And then the religious authorities jump in and they say, he's actually evil, he has an evil spirit. Uh, he's, He's claiming to cast out demons, but he's doing it in the name of the master of demons. Jesus then just goes inside And the crowd shifts to hear how this one they have magnetically followed will respond. And in response, he tells parables. But then after that, we get to this fun part. The part that I've spent the majority of this last week wrestling with in my mind and heart. It's that verse 29, where he says, uh, the one about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He says, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven of their sins and whatever blasphemes they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, uh, growing up, I understood this passage to mean that if I spoke against the Holy Spirit or against Jesus, if I denied the existence of the Holy Spirit, I could not be forgiven. This verse was terrifying, and I, in preparing for the sermon, I went on YouTube to see if this is still a thing, and it is still a thing. There are hundreds of videos out there of people trying to avoid blaspheming the Holy Spirit with their words. And if you read this verse outside of any context, and you read it literally, I, this is where you come to. And it's in part why I spent so much time wrestling with it this week, because I don't believe it means that. I how can it be that something we could say would cast us away into eternal damnation? What is that? But given what I was taught as a child and 
what I've learned since, it left me wondering. What does it mean? What could it mean? So in the story, we've got Jesus' family and religious authorities claiming he's not fake or phony, but out of his mind and um, the master of demons. But Jesus, instead of addressing their concerns, goes ahead and turns the table on them in this classic Jesus move. He does it in this really simple way. In the two parables, he tells back to the scribes, instead of using the word Beelzebul, he uses the word Satan, the accuser. Like, um, remember when Jesus casts, uh, calls Peter Satan, get behind me, Satan. It's a term used for anything acting against the work of God, an adversary to the work of God. So these scribes thought they were backing Jesus up against the wall by telling the crowds that he was calling out demons by the power of the master of demons. They thought that what they said would indict Jesus. But Jesus turns it back on them and says, those who call the work of God the work of evil are the ones who will suffer consequences. This warning that Jesus gives is to not blaspheme the spirit then is about misattributing the work of God to the work of evil, of fundamentally misunderstanding the nature and confusing the nature of the spirit of God to which there are consequences. So then my questions are threefold. What is the nature of the spirit of God? What are the consequences of misattribution? And how do we discern the movement of the spirit versus evil? According to Mark, we've seen the spirit move three times, all in chapter one. And in all three accounts, the spirit has been on or connected to the person of Jesus. The nature of the spirit then, in this particular case in Mark, was doing something new and potentially very scary for this early community of believers. The spirit was moving in a way that was breaking rules. The nature of the spirit was acting in love and affection, casting out evil and healing illnesses. But how could someone see that? The breaking rules, acting in love and affection, casting out evil and demons, and misattribute that to the work of evil? In short, the answer is fear. For the scribes, it might have been fear of their world crashing in, fear of change, fear of being wrong, fear of not being enough, fear of loss. And for Jesus' family, it might have been a fear of physical harm to them or Jesus. He was causing quite a scene. They had fear of being socially outcast and ultimately fear of death. How, then, do we miss the Spirit? I think we miss the Spirit when we're rooted in our fears and anxieties, when we're rooted in jealousy and hatred and envy and protection and security and confusion so much that we can't see straight. And what happens when that happens? What are the consequences? Our hearts can become hardened calcified even. Jesus is saying that the Spirit of God is on the move and is at work. But if you confuse that work with the work of evil, then you will miss it. You will miss God. It makes me think of that first Samuel passage too. When they're asking for this king and, and Jesus is saying, or God is saying, you know, you don't need these things. And then 
They said, no, we know, we know what we need. And they've hardened their hearts. How will we know the Spirit of God then? How will we know what this new work, what the nature of the Spirit of God might be? Well, if we look back to Mark, I think we've got some good clues. Does it heal? And more specifically, whose wounds are being healed? Is there loss? And what is being lost? Is there loss of privilege? If so, that might be the work of God. And if it's another's bodily loss, that might be the work of evil. But there's more, which is the end of this passage we read this morning, where Jesus then turns to the crowd and gives them his blessing. They have done the will of God. And what have they done? Well, for starters, they didn't call Jesus the master of demons or say he was out of his mind. So, pretty low bar for the will of God. But the thing they did do, they were desperate for love and healing and life. So much so that they abandoned their social conventions, perhaps their families even, their schedule and their time, clearly their comfort, because there they were in this crowded house, jammed in, not, without able to eat bread. And they did it on a hunch that this man was about the spirit, that they saw in him the movement of God. And this gripped me this week, because sometimes... I don't know. I don't know what to think about stuff. There's new opinions and movements every day that come up. And I don't always know who I should trust or what I should think. I feel like I can trust my gut at some times, and other times I sense that my gut is riddled with all the isms of the world. Racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, white supremacy, fundamentalism, to name just a few. So I found this passage, rather than being a scary, inapplicable passage that I thought it was, to be a source of life and a guide in how to live this life in search of God. And in a moment, it's difficult to calm my mind and heart, to hear the Spirit, to look for what heals. My fears and anxieties about what I might lose are so loud sometimes. My clamoring for safety so frenzied. But this is, dare I say, the will of God. As we transition into what's next for us as a society, for this church, for all souls, for us as family, as parents, and as individuals, may we be so bold and brave and so unencumbered as was this crowd to watch and move towards the spirit in what heals bodies, in what drives out evil, and what freely moves with compassion.